It's intern John. Celebrate the coziest season with Safeway. They're bringing all the fall flavors to you. From pumpkin everything to caramel apples and all of your seasonal favorites. Make the most of those fireside dinners, game-winning touchdowns, and warm family gatherings. Visit your neighborhood Safeway today or shop online for easy pickup or delivery. They're here to help you spice, season, and savor every moment. Sincerely, Safeway. Rising Giants Network. His body was um, not stiffed, uh, was as if he was sleeping. Sometimes I cry when I wake up. I wake up depressed and uh, I missed him a lot, a lot. We were so distant from this. This was, this happens in other parts of the world, mm. not here. It's part of Islam that forgiveness is on the individual. What I can say is that it is clear that this is one of New Zealand's darkest days. I'm Ashley Stewart, and from the Rising Giants Network, this is Our Darkest Day, examining the aftermath of the 2019 Christchurch terror attacks. I've spent the last two years speaking with some of the people most affected by this horrific crime, and in this podcast, I have the privilege of introducing you to them. This is the story of that day and the aftermath told in their words. This podcast isn't for sensitive ears or for children. If it's starting to feel like too much, just switch it off. In the last episode, we heard the details of how a white supremacist carried out a deadly massacre in two mosques in Christchurch during Friday prayer on March 15, 2019. Victims' families had gathered at Christchurch Hospital to find missing family members. Iraqi calligraphist Jana Azat still had not found her 35-year-old son, Hussein. Jordanian barber Wasim al-Sati and his four-year-old daughter were both shot multiple times and were gravely injured. Iraqi engineer Adib Sami was shot twice, shielding his son, and was critically injured. Episode 2 the aftermath. In the days following the mosque attacks, a collective grief hung over Christchurch. Citizens of the country, at home and abroad, Muslim and non-Muslim, felt shock, anger, sadness and disbelief that such a thing could happen here. That's not us, people were quick to say. But people of colour around the country replied, actually, it is. Pictures of Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern at a refugee centre in a headscarf went viral. An end of innocence, read the newspaper headlines. Many victims' families still didn't know the fate of their loved ones. Many people hadn't been carrying identification when they were in the mosque, meaning a long identification process for the bodies. Some were injured past the point of recognition. For Jana Azat, it was a case of knowing before being told. After a sleepless night on March 15th, her son Hussein had still not joined the list of the injured. But one of Hussein's friends, Ali Adib, Adib Sami's son, had seen Hussein fall after being shot and not get up. He, and another man who was in the mosque during the shooting, told the family what they saw. One of them um, 
sons of uh, Adib uh, said that he wa- he witnessed uh, Hussein was uh, uh, shouting at the killer. So at that stage, I became to know that uh, for sure was in the mosque. And because he's not injured, it means that he is, uh, he was killed. Yeah. This is Aya, Jana's daughter. He told me that he was um, hiding amongst the pile of, uh, Adib was hiding amongst the pile of bodies, but what he could see and hear is Hussein saying, um, I can't remember. Get out. It's all a blur. He was Get out. Get out, get out. This is the house of God. And, um, and finish. That's it. I mean, the sound is chopped. Yeah. 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 The sound is chopped once he, uh, was killed. Yeah. Unofficially. Yeah. Unofficially is we were never told. Officially. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Like, you know what I mean? Like, it's it's saying, hey, you know, these are the list of people that are uh, 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 being treated for injuries. And Hussein's and name is not included. Not there. So the police, from an official perspective, treated Hussein as missing until proven otherwise. So he was a missing person, essentially, for six days. And... On the sixth day, that's when we got confirmation of death. But we started grieving 48 hours after because we just knew. Police would later tell Jana that Hussein had been sitting near the front, near his friend Atta Aliyan. They were near a broken window, but neither of them escaped. Jana believes Hussein would never have thought about escaping. He would have tried to save everyone else first. She takes solace that her son died a hero in his place of worship. She started calling him her shaheed, her martyr. In Islam, this is one of the greatest honors that can be bestowed upon a person. The martyr is given special favors and privileges from Allah. Once the first drop of his blood is shed, all of his sins are forgiven. The mosque attack was New Zealand's worst peacetime shooting ever. In total, 51 people were killed and 40 people were injured. By 10pm that night, a 28-year-old white male was charged with murder. In the days that followed, Christchurch Mayor Leanne Dalziel spent time visiting those most affected, often accompanied by Prime Minister Ardern. Ardern's response, urging peace and rejection of extremist ideology rather than revenge or retribution, won favour around the world. Here's Christchurch Mayor Leanne Dalziel. Her response was uh, so instinctive and, um, you know, I know that this is an overhashed word, but authentic. She was utterly authentic in the moment. Everything that she said and did Mm. touched every every person that she came into contact with. I, I was with her on the Saturday when she came down. Her capacity to connect with people Uh, and to speak and understand what was needed to be said was just amazing. Yeah. It was, it was, it was wonderful to see Mm. a leader who totally understood their role and what it was that they needed to do. And sometimes um, leaders are are thrown into a situation where they over-promise. Yeah. 
um, and she never did that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, we did see that after the earthquakes, yeah. and we didn't see that here. Uh, but she she responded to each of the needs, knowing what they were. The top priority mm-hmm. was obviously the release um, of the their loved ones. Authorities grappled with how to navigate the aftermath of such a large-scale police operation, while also honouring Muslim burial rights, which stated that burial must be within 24 hours of death. That simply wasn't possible here, but Mia Dalziel, who had served as Minister of Immigration in the past, knew how important it was to at least try and get things done quickly. I said the 24 hours will run from when they're released from the hospital because I knew that the... So I I went to every single briefing that I could yeah. so that I could hear directly what the police commissioner was saying, what the, um, what the uh, coroner... I went yeah. to the coroner's press conference and it was yeah. so... It, and for me, that made it easier for me to say... I picked up a phrase from her, which I repeated. Mm. There were, and I said this to to people. I said it, nothing would be worse than to hand the wrong loved one to the wrong family. Yeah, you know, yeah. and um, and I think people hadn't just thought of the enormity of people being in their place of worship without mm. identification. Yeah, eventually. The Al-Noor Imam was taken down into the morgue to identify the dead. It was the quickest set of post-mortem examinations ever performed in the country. The council worked overtime to have more than four dozen graves ready for burial by Monday morning, three days after the shooting. Hussein's body was one of the last to be released. Jana received his body back six days after his death. It was her birthday, as well as Mother's Day in the Middle East. Yeah, it was the most expensive gift in my life, in my birthday, that his body, I get his body instead of a flower or bucket. Because they used to give me a bucket and uh, uh, some uh, uh, necklaces or anything, both of them. They used to share the money and to give me a very valuable gift, plus the bucket. Yeah, and I still have... uh, a lot of necklaces from them on my birthday because I like necklaces. So at this stage, uh, I was just, uh, uh, I forgot totally it was my birthday. We have to do something. I have to uh, say goodbye to him. I have to hug hug him. So we did. We have plenty of time to hug him, to talk to him, to... uh, to film, to record, to have photos at the last moment. And we did have photos. He was bleeding at the last moment of the six days he was bleeding as if he is injured. And they uh, change his uh, bandages every day. So the blood was fresh from his head. His body was um, not stiff, uh, was as if he was sleeping. What comes next is pretty hard to listen to, but Jana takes solace in describing seeing her son for the last time. She actually smiles when she speaks about it. They gave us uh, police before we viewed his body. They said, oh, you know, it's been six days. 
mm. is um, it would be inflamed and it would be their discoloration. We were bracing ourselves for the worst, but as soon as we saw him, it's like nuts. He's oh my god, sleeping. Yeah, he was yeah, beautiful, beautiful. Yeah. beautiful. It's nothing, nothing. But only his head was covered, but it's, it was a big hole in his head. So his skull is not, I mean, it's like, uh, uh, it's like a bowel, empty bowel. Yeah. And blood coming out from uh, his brain. And um, so many uh, bullets in uh, his body, um, in his hands. And thigh. And thigh. So it was like a big relief because when I saw him, nothing wrong with his body. No um, reddish or uh, bluish. As if he was sleeping, uh, Hazim, he was about to say, Hussein, wake up, that's it, you are sleeping. And I recorded, to be honest, to show to, I mean, to for my record, I record a video and uh, his hands are flexible, his foot, feet are flexible, his toes, his fingers, his neck, everything was flexible. That I reach a stage that he is not dead. He is not dead, but he, in fact, he is dead. No uh, uh, heart pulse and no heartbeat. The reason why he's, um, he looks in the state that he is is because in, 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 um, in our faith, we do believe the ones who died in the way of God or in the manner that he died basically are called shaheed or martyrs. And there is an ayah or a verse in the Quran that says, do not believe those who died in the way of God are dead, dead. but they are alive and well fed. Yeah, but we don't see them. Hussein was buried with his fellow worshippers. His headstone is adorned with Arabic calligraphy by Jana and her sister. Along the top, it says martyred hero, Hussein Hazim Alamari. And along the sides, around a smiling picture of Hussein, is a verse from the Quran saying, We belong to Allah, and to Allah we shall return. Jana spent the weeks after the funeral in a daze. She didn't sleep, and all she could do was cry. She didn't know how she could go on without her eldest child. Friends and family flew in from around the country and around the world, and this made grieving easier. And so did remembering that he died a hero. But one of the hardest parts of the grief for Jana was how differently people began to treat her and how they avoided speaking about Hussein. She got annoyed when people didn't ask about him. She wanted to talk about him. He was well known for his compassion and bravery and she never tires of talking about that. It's ultimately how he lived and how he died. Not because he is my son, believe me, but he was a man. Uh, he was very generous, very friendly to everyone. He gives, uh, he never take, but gives. Aya, you, you know how to. to. Hmm. He, he's, he's, um, he projects warmth to, to everyone. Uh, after, after, um, I mean, after his death, we came to know of so many, many, many stories on how he touched uh, uh, people's hearts one way or another. Here's Aya speaking about one of her brother's last acts. So on the 14th of March, the night before, he went and got pizza from his regular pizza shop. And uh, before he went to the pizza hut shop, he went to Countdown and got some groceries and got, um, he's like me, he's very... Uh, 
or I'm like him because uh, he's older. Um, he, he's got a sweet tooth. So he's got um, some chocolate bars when he went to the grocery store and then he went to get dinner. And um, as soon as he uh, uh, made the, as soon as the crew did the pizza, he opened his countdown bag and gave one of the guys a chocolate bar and said, thank you very much for making me really nice pizzas always. And the guy said, yep, always and we'll see you later. And that really touched him so much that this was the very last chocolate bar he got from Hussein. It just, it was little things like that that just made so much impact on people's lives, you know. The family hold tight to memories of Hussein, repeating stories often. Jana gets misty-eyed and laughs to herself as she tells this one. This memory is especially important to her because it explains why Hussein would never have left the mosque with others still inside. We used to travel every six months. So we assigned um, uh, armor guard to and give them uh, the key to check on the house randomly and especially at night. So I give them the key uh, maybe two or three days before and I set a time for them. From this date, you come and check the house. And uh, they made a mistake. They came uh, one night before, before we leave. Uh, of course, they have the key. And we were sleeping. This was maybe at 3 a.m. or something like that, yeah. And um, he, um, the security guy, uh, opened the entrance door with his key. And then uh, Hussein's uh, room and Aya's room were uh, very close to the entrance door. So Hussein's here, somebody is trying to, uh, to open the door and then the door opened and Hussein just jumped when Hussein saw the door open. Somebody opened the door and tried to close it. So Hussein immediately jumped to the man and squeezed the man between the door and the wall behind the door and squeezing him, squeezing him until uh, then the man, he said, I'm not a thief. I'm not a thief. I'm armor guards. I'm armor guards. So Hussein initially didn't believe him. And at that time, when the, they, sh- they are shouting at each other, I woke up and then went to, uh, to the uh, corridor to hear w- what's happening. And then uh, the, uh, the armor guard told uh, Hussein, look at my badge. I'm, I'm armor guard. I came to check your house. And then at that time, Hussein released the door. And yeah, and they were, they started laughing and laughing. I was shocked. I was just from, uh, from shouting to laughing. Things hadn't been great for Hussein before he died. After studying tourism, he went on to get a job at a hotel in the city centre. But he'd resigned from that role after facing discrimination at work. He got some racist from the staff. And uh, he couldn't uh, continue. Every day he come and say, I'm not happy, I'm not happy. I, uh, we told him, okay, apply for another job b- before you resign. And all of a sudden he applied for his uh, resignation. He couldn't uh, stand it. And uh, started applying uh, for a job. And when he received uh, rejection, rejection, He was struggling, 
relying sometimes on money from his parents and living in a state house. While it meant he had time to go to the mosque for prayer more often, he was getting depressed. He was applying for jobs and hearing nothing back. He wanted to leave Christchurch but couldn't without any money. So the last uh, the third, uh, three days before his death, he was with us and he received that email rejection from, I don't know, from which uh, a company. And he went out. It was recorded in our security camp. He went out shouting and uh, he was swearing. And said, please God, where I go, where to go, where to go, I have nowhere to go. I was in the laundry at that time, very close to the garage door. And I just said to God, please do something for Hussein. Please make him happy. I prayed to God. He was not uh, swearing, but it's like frustrated. Yeah. Everybody's rejecting me. I have no place in New Zealand. Uh, Where to go? God, please, where to go? Where to go? And at that time, I said, please, God, uh, do something for Hussein. I didn't know that he will get him. In the days leading up to March 15th, Jana had noticed a change in her son. He had always been devoted to his faith, but he was more pious than usual. She observed him praying in the rain in the garden. He was carrying the Quran around with him at all times, which he'd never done before. His behavior was changed. I mean, concentrating on praying, holding the Holy Quran 24 hours. Um, it's, it's, it's as if he is going to God. He's, he was getting ready. ready. It's as if he's subtly doing his farewells in a very yeah, yeah. great manner. Yeah, yeah. He changed. We noticed yeah. that. We noticed that he, he he's not anymore living in, uh, in the earth. So his mind, his, uh, um, it's, uh, we felt that. We felt that. But we never, ever expected that he will be killed. We thought, okay, maybe something wrong with him. But no, it, it's not. It's not. The last time Jana saw Hussein was the night before the shootings. She'd just bought a brand new car. Hussein was in good spirits and had come over to have a look. We were very happy. And it was uh, on the driveway. And he was with us. And uh, hugging me. Wow, it's very nice car. It's very... And uh, hugged me and telling me, congratulations, mama, it's very nice car. And then I told him, Hussein, let's, uh, because we got inheritance from uh, uh, Iraq, so we will be able to uh, buy new cars or to move to a new house. So I told him and his dad told him, Hussein, let's buy you a new car. He said, no, I need nothing. I need nothing. Hussein, we will pay your uh, debts or something because he had some... Uh, some debts. Some debts, maybe. No. It, he says, no, no, no. At the last moment, no. I don't need anything. I don't need anything. Your car is old. We have to change it. No, I'm happy with my car. So he he never uh, told... Uh, telling us that we, he wants something. He gives rather than taking. He gave his mother a hug before he left. 
She thinks about that hug all the time. Back in Christchurch Hospital, Adib Sami was still recovering from his injuries. He was in a medically induced coma for three days. You'll remember Adib as the Iraqi engineering executive who shielded his son from the shooter, but took two bullets himself. One of the bullets had lodged in his spine and another in his shoulder. His x-rays show a polka dot pattern of shrapnel in his side and a cavernous fracture in his pelvis. He had three major operations to save his life. Uh, the bullet entered near my hip and the damage, you know, explode inside. This type of, uh, of bullet he used. So uh, he, he hit my kidney and uh, they remove around 35 centi from colon and uh, some damage of stomach. That's the, the main things, uh, the damages he hit. For my shoulder, it uh, didn't affect, to be honest. Despite his injuries, Adib never lost his humour. Before he was put into a coma, a friend came to his bedside asking how he was feeling, and he simply said he felt like someone who had been shot. Later, after waking up again, his first words were about a tennis tournament. I remember uh, I woke up and uh, one guy, he came, my friend, he asked me what you are feeling. I told him what I am feeling, a, a guy with two bullets. So <laughs> that's my feeling. What can, I, what can I feel? I have no answers. And uh, after that also, I lost, uh, I, I went three, three days in coma. After the first day, first day I woke up, I was okay, but uh, it seems that some infection or some something. So I, uh, the, the, I went for a coma three days. And uh, I remember when I woke up, the main thing I was thinking about is, <laughs> you cannot believe it, but uh, this is the reality. Because I plan to only uh, to to post uh, the 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 picture I took it in my house, and I I wanted to watch you know the the tennis uh, Federer. So the first thing when they give me the board, I I I wrote Federer to the nurse, and I asked her what he did. <laughs> <laughs> the poor nurse, she didn't, she couldn't answer me. What's there? What's this guy? But uh, when Sana came and uh, saw Federer, she said he won. Don't worry. But the reality, he lost. <laughs> well, that that I, I couldn't uh, forget. Uh, I will never forget that day when I asked about Federer. The first thing <laughs> I didn't ask about anything except Federer. In total. Adib spent 19 days in hospital before being discharged to recover at home. He proudly shows off his hospital photos, one with Prime Minister Ardern, one with Prince William, and one with his family beaming around his bed. But in the photos, he looks like a different man. He looks thin, maybe a decade older than he does in that photo from the cafe with Hamza, taken just before the shootings. The day he got home, he finally posted that home sweet home message on Facebook that he'd planned to do before the shootings. He'd promised Christchurch Mayor Leanne Dalziel he would. New Zealanders grieved together in the weeks that followed. People of all backgrounds and religions stood with the Muslim community, 
standing watch over mosques as they prayed, sending money to those who had lost their breadwinners, and holding public memorial services. The survivors and victims' families didn't want to respond with hatred or revenge. They preached forgiveness and understanding. For Abdi Ibrahim, as he mourned the death of his three-year-old brother, this was especially important. For those few days, there was not much information, like what was happening, why did this guy do that and all that. So there was a lot of not sinking in. I guess, you know, for our belief, you know, if there's good thing and bad thing happen, we say Alhamdulillah, and we can't question why, 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 but we can only um, see good things come out of this. So pretty much um, everyone goes through different uh, experiences which my experience is um, Allah made me a survivor for a reason. So that's what made me uh, realize there's going to be good things coming out of this, and it's a test for all of us. I guess it's made uh, Islam victims now because we've been uh, the, the face of you know extremism and all that. And I guess New Zealand has put a map on and shine light on us Muslims. I guess you've probably seen uh, what's happened after it happened. You know, so many flowers everywhere. And, you know, we've never expected this overwhelming support and help from one of each other. I guess it's part of Islam that forgiveness is on the individual. And when you forgive someone, you're doing it for the sake of Allah. The rest of his family was able to move forward in the wake of the attacks. They saw the death of their youngest sibling and child as a test, but Abdi wasn't coping so well. The memories in Christchurch were too much for him. He had nightmares every night and dreamed that his brother was still alive. He moved to Perth, where his two sisters live, and found work in the mining industry. He intends to return eventually. He just doesn't know when. I guess I made that choice just for this to settle down and hopefully come back a few few months or a year time because I've been constantly asked asking asked by people, oh, are you okay? How are you doing? And all that. And also praying at the mosque was quite uh, difficult for me. I guess um, any person that goes through this experience, that uh, they should be grateful um, that you're still alive. Just six days after the attacks, Prime Minister Ardern had banned the sale of all military-style semi-automatics and assault rifles after questions were raised over how the terrorist was able to get so many firearms so easily. A few weeks later, New Zealand Parliament passed the Gun Reform Bill, the first substantial changes to the country's gun laws in decades. It passed with 119 votes to one. The shooter was charged with carrying out a terrorist attack on top of the 50 counts of murder and 40 counts of attempted murder that he already faced. New Zealand had established the Terrorism Suppression Act in the wake of 9-11, but this was the first time anyone had ever been charged with it. I returned to Christchurch in June 2019, about three months after the attacks. When I arrive, it's Ramadan, the holiest month on the Muslim calendar. It's the month when practicing Muslims fast between sunrise and sunset. Families get together each night for the iftar meal to break their fast. 
It's an important month of reflection and charity. But this year, for many Muslims in Christchurch, it means painful reminders of what's been lost. I visit Jana, Hazim and Aya one night in their small home in a suburban area in Christchurch. The living room is decorated in Jana's artworks. There's a slideshow of photos of Hussein playing across the TV. It's the first time I've met the family in person, and they're very welcoming. They've all been too grief-stricken to fast this year, but have prepared iftar for us all anyway. Over homemade kibbeh, tabbouleh and hummus, the family reminisce about how their lives have changed over the past four months. Jana is the most openly emotional and clearly still struggling day to day. She smokes almost non-stop at the table. Her voice catches when she speaks about Hussein, and her face is mostly fixed in a vacant stare. Aya had returned to work for the first time the day before my visit. Hazim, Jana's husband, had decided to try fasting for the last 10 days. However, he still couldn't stand hearing the call to prayer. These next bits were recorded during that iftar, so there's a lot going on. Here's Hazim, who you haven't heard from yet. Yeah, but because, you know, the last 10 days, which are the holiest part of the month, I mean, that's how our the definition is that the last 10 days is, are the holiest days of the month. Mm-hmm. So I said, okay, let me, I mean, okay. But no call for a prayer. Sometimes I cry, Mm-mm. especially yeah, yeah, at night. Difficult. When I wake up, I wake up uh, depressed. Yeah. And uh, I missed him a lot, a lot. Actually, the victim support lady, she, told, she gave me a very good, uh, very good advice. She, uh, she said to me, um, maybe send an email to everyone mm-hmm. in the team saying, Something along the lines of, you know, I'm back at work. You know, either I mind being asked questions or I don't mind being asked mm. questions, so it kind of puts the power back in me. After the attacks, people were kinder and more welcoming to the family than they'd ever been. While Hussein had experienced some racism here, he was also the one in the family who'd made friends and really established himself in the Muslim community. Here's Hazim. My definition was... That New Zealanders are friendly, but not friends. Yeah. Hussein has, a, uh, we didn't realize this, that Hussein has very good link in, in, the, in the, much better than us. We are isolated somehow. Yeah. But he has a lot of links mm. in, in Abu Dhabi from the start. And he never, he never, uh, he never co- stopped that. And then the relatives, mm. And also in, uh, his friends here. So friends came from from Melbourne, from Sydney, from Auckland, Auckland especially mm. for Hussein. So <coughs> this house, believe me, it was full of people. And I don't know who they are. I never met them. I thought that this have, have, this only with us as Arabs, well, uh, open doors and so on. But mm. during this event, no. The New Zealanders, it's... They consider uh, open doors. They just come anytime, no appointment, nothing. Just knock the door and come with yeah. some some stuff. And I recall one of the here. There was she's a teacher. She said, "Oh, I took long time to what? She wants to make sure that the ingredients doesn't have the pork. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, that yeah. was uh, so." 
After her brother's death, Aya constantly questioned, what would Hussein do in this situation? He'd always been more outgoing, the one more likely to be talking to strangers. She decided to live her life more like that. My attitude changed in terms of mm. what would Hussein do, you know? Really? Like, so like normally if, if mm. somebody was like, um, what happened in, oh, in Auckland, um, uh, some, some guy just randomly said hello and, and normally I would just say, I would just ignore it and walk off, but I just said hello back because, you know, that's what Hussein would do, mm. you know? And he turned out to be Arab from Emirates. As well, and was just passing by. He was bored, and he was like, "I was just going to say hello to this chick," and you answered. In fact, it heals us because we feel that Hussein, among others, did something for for Mm. his for his his faith. Like not in a million years did we ever ever think that the call to prayer was going to be in heavenly part. Yeah, what Aya is referring to here is the call to prayer being broadcast from the city's Hagley Park a week after the attacks, as part of a nationwide memorial service. While I was in Christchurch, I wanted to stop by Al Noor to quietly pay my respects. I left the central city one day on foot, heading off in what I assumed was the direction of the mosque, to the eastern side of Hagley Park. I arrived at the spot where I thought it was, only to stare across the road at a block of flats. It was at that point that I realised I was entirely wrong. I'd no idea where it was. The only knowledge I had of the mosque's whereabouts had been from the media photos of the attacks. Despite the fact I'd lived in the city for the best part of a decade, I'd almost circumnavigated the park by the time I finally, sheepishly, stumbled across the mosque, on its western edge, on a road I used to drive down a few times a week. Two police officers are still guarding the mosque, holding guns. It's just before Friday prayer. Soon, the Muslim community start arriving in their droves as usual. Cars fill up on the main road and latecomers rush down the street. They all smile warmly as they walk past me. A man stops to say hello. It all seems so completely normal. In fact, the only visible reminder that anything out of the ordinary ever happened here was the two police officers and a thick stack of flowers wilting along the fence line. Alongside the flowers, there are small painted river stones Many have messages of support painted on them. A few say, we are you, or they are us. The unifying phrases so often seen in the aftermath of the attacks in artworks and social media posts. For the first time ever, I saw Ramadan Karim signs hung up around the city's biggest mall. News of the last day of Ramadan was on the front page of the city's paper. Some reminders were harder to see. I went for a haircut in Linwood. My hairdresser mentioned in passing that one of his clients was one of the dead, as well as the father of another client. Another who ran the local Indian restaurant. He knew them all. Just before Ramadan ends, I join Adib Sami and his family for iftar at their home. By New Zealand standards, this house is a mansion. It sits right on the edge of a cliff overlooking the sea, all floor-to-ceiling windows and modern touches. Adib's wife Sana and his daughter Hamza are cooking mountains of food in the kitchen. In the dining area, Adib breaks his fast with dates from the UAE. Despite his wounds, which are still healing, he's fasted all month. The call to prayer sounds throughout the house a little after 5pm as Adib and his son Abdullah 
gather to pray in the living room. The only way to tell that Adib was inflicted with a near-fatal injury three months ago is that he's rising and sitting on a stool, rather than kneeling. Adib doesn't know how he's walking around again so soon, and says even his doctors are astounded. He says people called him the penguin for a long time because of the way he's walking. Laughs erupt from around the table. But he's also pensive at times. He still sees his friends die around him most nights in his sleep. The family still have the recording of Heba, Adib's eldest daughter who lives in Dubai, finding out about her father being shot on the other side of the world. To anyone else, it sounds like nothing but an eight-second-long, blood-curdling scream. But Heber insists there are words in there. Adib laughs when he hears it played back to him, even now. Vascular surgeon Adib Kanafa spent the days after the attacks keeping tabs on his patients. As well as Wasim's daughter, he operated on four other mosque victims. The little girl was so badly injured, she was transferred to Starship Children's Hospital in Auckland for specialist care. Adib kept up with her progress through emails and texts from the intensive care unit. She was brain damaged, struggling to see, walk and talk in the weeks after the attacks. The days wore on and she went into rehab to begin the long recovery process. By the time she flew home to Christchurch, she was well on the mend and her father wanted to take her into Christchurch Hospital, just so she could walk out of there alive. After that, Adib got the chance to meet the little girl he had dubbed his masterpiece. And when she came back to Christchurch, uh, the police liaised with me, and we met together in a cafe outside uh, Christchurch uh, Hospital. I've never worked on a, uh, on a child, except doing simple things when I was a trainee as an, as an appendectomy, but I've never done any major procedures. I do not want to do major procedures on, uh, on children. It is, it is one of the things I, I avoid at this particular stage. But for a four-year-old girl who's been injured in the most critical part in your body, in a place where I know more than 90% would die from their injury, for us to manage to to, um, to fix the problem and rescue her, survived and survived, that is really the best I could, I could, I could have wished for, um, for a 30 years old girl to survive this as a father and as a doctor for that girl to survive, you know, that is, that is a 30 years of training in one day. And, and I'm grateful to, to God Almighty for the survival of this girl. And I asked her what she wants to be. And I said, do we need to make a doctor out of you or a surgeon? She said, no, I want to be um, a, a policewoman, which is, um, which, is, uh, which, is, which is great disappointment. Um, um, but it's understandable. Uh, for me, um, on that day, I think uh, the police were the heroes in my eyes, particularly those two policemen who stopped, who stopped him. Uh, so naturally for me, if uh, I think the police... Uh, are the heroes of the day, and surely for a young girl, she would think she would think the same. During that same trip in 2019, I visit Christchurch Mayor Leanne Dalziel in her council chambers. She says that the last three months have been a huge learning curve for her, both in terms of the attack itself and in terms of understanding racism and white supremacy. 
She talks proudly of holding an event in recent days, making sure she greeted the crowd with Eid Mubarak. It wasn't tokenism, she insists, but an attempt to do better. She points to the first citizenship ceremony after the attacks, held four days afterwards. She addressed the shootings before the ceremony began. One of the first people to gain citizenship was a young Indian girl who took the mirror by surprise when she gathered her into a hug instead of the usual handshake. A photo, taken at the exact moment the hug took place, shows the mirror with her eyes wide open and mouth agape, shocked but delighted. After that, each person who arrived on stage hugged her instead of shaking her hand. Mia Dalziel has dealt with a lot over the course of her mirrorship, the aftermath of Christchurch's devastating earthquakes for one. I ask her if the attacks are the biggest challenge she's had to deal with. It's the most shocking thing that I have had to deal with and the most unexpected. In my speech, I sort of talk about, oh, I was not prepared for this. If anyone had said this would happen here, but if anyone had said it would happen in New Zealand, I wouldn't believe it. You know, like, for me, we were so distant from this. This was this happens in other parts of the world, mm. not here. And that's actually still how I feel, mm. you know. And then there's uh, a whole lot of um, other things that I wasn't prepared for, questions about white supremacism and also the experience of racism in the city. Instead, Dalziel sees an opportunity for the city. She believes Christchurch's response could be a powerful example for the rest of the world. So can Christchurch, out of this atrocity, Mm. become uh, the platform for change that we want to see in the world, you know, to steal Gandhi's phrase? Um, And and can that platform for change be uh, create Christchurch as a place where people come to share ideas, where people come to... um, uh, or where people leave from in order to spread this message across the world. Uh, can we develop that antidote that the Prime Minister spoke about? Uh, and can we be the catalyst for um, change for good, uh, positive change in the world? And then what we then acknowledge and celebrate is what our response was, mm. not the event. I do think Christchurch mm-hmm. can become that. Um, and it's almost like we know this instinctively from after the earthquakes yeah. that the way you get through the trauma of um, an event such as that is by coming together as neighbours, as communities, as a city. It's that coming together, that, mm. that sense of unity. That's, that's, that's how you get through. And so the, um, and, and, you know, I have been sort of saying in my, in my talks on this, um, just imagine what the world would be like if this had been the response to 9-11. But healing requires far more than just talking about it. In the months that followed, the Muslim community would talk about how their security concerns were ignored. Casual racism continued to be felt. Right-wing copycat attacks happened across the world. For many, justice didn't come for another 18 months. For others, it hasn't come at all. 
In the next episode of Our Darkest Day, we zoom out a bit to delve into the backstory of some of the victims and their families to understand why New Zealand is chosen as a safe haven for many people from war-torn countries. And we hear about Adib Sami and Jana Azat's journey to their new home in Christchurch. I remember that uh, that night, maybe the last hundred kilometers from crossing the border, I continue crying because I felt that I will never come back to Iraq again. This is my home and uh, let's go. And we lived for 15 years, the most beautiful years in my life. This is the, the, the country we have to live. We have to live our life there. We have to end our life there. Our Darkest Day is a Rising Giants Network production. It was written by myself, Ashley Stewart. It was produced by Bashar Najjar and Basil Anabtawi, with script and story consultation by Popsock Media in New Zealand. Find us on Apple Podcasts, Deezer, Spotify, Angami, or wherever you get your podcasts.